1: Good morning. Good to be with you. Wish you a happy new year. Good to worship with you this very first day of 2023. We are, appropriately enough, starting a new series this morning on spiritual transformation. We're going to be thinking together about what it means to have a spiritual life. Think about what the nature of a spiritual life is. Think about how that spiritual life gets expressed in life, how you grow in that spiritual life. Now, why are we doing this? I mean, don't, don't, don't we talk every week about having a spiritual life and how to live it out? We, we do. And yet, if you spend time talking with God's people, people who are in good churches, who study Scripture, who think hard about the life of faith, if you talk with God's people for just a little while, what you discover is a profound ignorance. Ignorance about ourselves as persons, about what makes us tick, about why we do the things that we do, and ignorance then about how do we actually apply the gospel to our lives? What does that look like? How is that supposed to work? These two kinds of ignorance of ourselves and of how, we, how the gospel works lead then to you and me not seeing the kind of spiritual life in our own lives that we read about in scripture, that we see there and we think, oh man, that, that's what I want. I don't know why I'm not having that. And so if you spend time talking with people people like Mary and just to reassure you this morning all of these examples i'm giving are not people at renewal they're from people i've spoken with over the years if you speak to people like Mary you discover a lot of ignorance mary found herself in the living room one night she was trying to calm down she had bought a paint by numbers kit she thought that'd be great fun to do with her son he thought it was great fun too grabbed the paintbrush and took and drew this great big blue streak across numbers 4, 5, 14, and 23. And Mary just lost it, found herself yelling at her son, blowing up at him because he's not staying in the lines. That was bad. Thank you. What was worse was that she didn't know why she was doing that. She had just planned this activity, something that would bring herself and her son closer together, and she used that same activity to rip the relationship apart. And it didn't make any sense to her. What was so important to her about staying in the lines that she would risk ruining her relationship with her son? She didn't know. I'm totally sympathetic because Mary and I have a lot in common. Early in our marriage, Sally and I discovered a relational problem. About two or three nights each week, I would come home from the ministry I was in at the time, and within just a few moments, I would start a fight with her. It was always over something incredibly small. Book was out of place, dinner isn't ready, can't find the papers that I'm looking for. And those small trivial things, nothing big at all, became reasons then for me to start an argument, and that argument then set the tone for the way that we spent the rest of the evening. I would say something unkind, it would make Sally feel foolish. Understandably, she would defend herself, we'd go back and forth from there, and I would storm off feeling totally justified and at the same time, strangely guilty. I knew I was wrong to bring war into my home. That is not what God means when he calls husbands to lay down their lives for their wives. And so here I am, a hypocrite. I am a minister by day and a war maker by night. And the worst part is, I don't know why. Why do I keep doing the same thing over and over and over? And I'm wondering, what's wrong with me? Why am I fighting with the person that I worked so hard to marry? How did I get here? And just like my friend Mary, years later, I didn't know. I was ignorant about the most basic things about myself, and I could not figure out then how to live out the faith that I said I believed. And it's that experience of not knowing why you're doing something often that you hate that hurts you and other people. It's that experience of personal ignorance, that haunts so many people in the church. It keeps us from being able to see the kind of spiritual growth that we long for. And I wish I could say that it's just me and Mary, just a couple of us, and you realize it's not. It's people like Mark, Mark who indulged his porn addiction for decades, felt guilty every single time, hated himself while he did it, felt this weight of shame that he carried around afterward, And yet found himself doing this again and again and again, destroying his wife, destroying his family in the process while he kept asking, why? Why why am I doing this? Or I think about Monica, young lady who felt these intense urges to hurt herself. She knows she's going to feel really guilty if she cuts, but if you asked her, what does that do for you? Why, Why do you keep doing that? The responses would be, not sure, don't know. If you spend just a little bit of time with her, you realize she's not lying, she's not blame-shifting, she's not making excuses. She honestly has no idea what's motivating her, what's driving her to do what she does. Just like Kim has no idea why she doesn't tell her husband what she's thinking when she's unhappy with him. And so she boils inside and churns until she feels like she can't take it anymore. Why does she do that? Why does she then decide to leave him and then come back? and then repeat the cycle, and repeat the cycle, and repeat the cycle. She came asking for help because she didn't know. Why does Brian go to adult clubs to find someone to talk to when he's happily married and his wife would love for him to spend more time with her? Why does Vicky get involved in these intense relationships, freak out in the moment of them, end them, and then get involved in another one several months later? Each one of these people wages a battle with personal ignorance on a profoundly deep level, they don't know why they do what they do. And you have to hear this. Please pay attention to this. Each of them are good, godly, committed believers, people who are just like other Christians I've talked with over the years. You can think here about lay people. You think about leaders in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, people who have heard more sermons than they can remember who have been to more Sunday school classes, who have served in Sunday school, who have served in small groups, who have led worship, who have genuine professions of faith, who read their Bibles, who go on missions trips, who have no idea why they're angry at the world, why they're caught up in bitterness, why they're depressed, lazy, joyless, why they fall into adultery, have a wide range of addictions, why... They ignore their families. They just don't know. And I have to confess, way too often, that's me as well. I'm in the same boat. And I know that I'm not alone in this. Daily, as believers, we live with an appalling amount of personal ignorance. And here's where that matters for you and me spiritually. If you do not know what's going on inside of you, if you don't understand you the way that God understands you. If you don't know the way that he made you to be, you won't know what's going wrong when it does. And you won't know how to connect the rich resources that God has provided with the very real needs that you have so that you then can live out the life that he's promised you. You won't be able to apply the gospel to your life and that will frustrate you. Because regardless then of how much you study or learn, if you don't know what to do with the gospel, you can sit here every Sunday, you can read great Christian books, you can go to CG, to Bible studies, you can go to youth group, and all you're gonna do is stockpile more information that you won't know what to do with. Information that will feel absolutely useless to you by Monday morning, if it makes it that far. And it'll feel to you then like the gospel has a gap in it, (laughs) like like it's missing something really important right in the center. You'll be able to explain really well what happened 2,000 years ago. You'll be able to talk really well about the new heavens and the new earth. You'll be able to talk about what the gospel means for the past, what it means for the future. And there will be this gap that feels like in the moment, in the present, here and now, the gospel seems to say nothing to me. And therefore what will feel what what will you feel like you'll feel like you need to add something to the gospel in order to make your life work and that's something as you study the history of god's people that god's people have done over and over and over throughout the centuries taking little elements from other religions taking elements from philosophies from humanistic systems of thought and belief and then bringing those alien thought beliefs into the church and syncretizing them, mashing them with the gospel, watering down the gospel. You read about this throughout Scripture, you read about it in church history. And we as God's people do this, not because the gospel is inadequate to handle the problems of living, but because we don't know what it is that we really need or how to apply what God provides. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to focus on what God has to say about us as human beings, and about how we actually grow to be more like Him, about how we are spiritually transformed. So for the remainder of today, we're going to start this series by recognizing three fundamental things about us as human beings, and I have shamelessly borrowed this outline from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. Three fundamental things about us as human beings. First, that everyone seeks some kind of treasure Second, that what you treasure will control your heart. And then, third, your heart controls your behavior. Three fundamental realities of what it means to be human. Everyone seeks some kind of treasure. Your treasure controls your heart, and your heart controls your behavior. First, notice the assumption that Jesus makes here in verses 19 to 20. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What does Jesus assume about you as a human being? What what does he know about you as a human being? It's that you seek some kind of treasure. The kind of treasure varies, but the activity of seeking treasure does not. He says, this is what you are. At the core of your identity, you are a treasure seeker. You prize things, you rank order them in life so that there are some things that matter more to you than others and some things that matter less. And you then spend your life, you live your life laying up, storing up treasure, working to have that which you treasure. In that sense, a fundamental part of your nature is that you are goal-oriented. You wake up in the morning set on having certain things, oriented around certain things, around certain treasures, things that you really, really want. Now, some people don't see that goal orientation in themselves. They wake up and feel like they don't really want anything. They think a perfect day would be one in which they didn't have to get up, where they didn't have to go to school, they didn't have to go to work, no one hassled them, made them do things that they don't wanna do. Now, does that mean that they're not goal-oriented? Does that mean that they don't treasure anything, that they don't seek treasure? Think Of course not. It means that the treasure they want, the thing that they rank as highest, is to be left alone and do whatever they feel like doing. And they believe that if only they could have that, then they would be completely satisfied with life, that they would think life couldn't get any better. That's what... They want out of life. Why? That's what they treasure. And Jesus says here that we all do this. We all live for some kind of treasure. We all work to store up, to value something above all other things. And he says that there are two fundamentally different kinds of treasure that we can work for. Either the kind that you find here on earth, the things that are made up of earth stuff, things that wear out, things that can be taken from you, You can work at storing up earth treasures, or you can store up the kinds of things that you find in heaven, things that don't wear out, things that can't be taken from you. These are the kinds of things that you associate with the place where God's presence is, the kinds of things that would fit into uh, his values where he is reigning supreme. And Jesus says if you want to understand yourself, then you have to understand you are someone who seeks a certain kind of treasure. You work to obtain a certain kind, and you have to understand that that treasure will either be something that you can store up here on earth or something that you can store up in heaven. He's saying that your treasure-seeking nature is oriented in one of two directions, toward earth stuff or heaven stuff. But then that leads me to a question, what does heaven stuff mean? What does that look like to store up treasure in heaven? Okay, I get earth stuff. I can picture that. I can see what treasuring physical things are like. I I can see that I can dedicate myself to building up my bank account, my investment portfolio. I can dedicate myself to filling up a closet with sweaters, dedicate myself to working out so that I have a certain appearance. I can see what earthbound treasures are like, and I can see that all of those are going to wear out or get taken away from me. But then what kind won't? what can I do now here on earth that will produce a treasure that neither moth nor rust destroys and that no one can take away from me? In other words, what lasts? What can I do now that has any chance of outlasting this world? And when you put it like that, you realize that the only things that outlast this world are people and God. And so if you want this kind of lasting treasure, treasure in heaven, then you have to be focused away from getting as much as you can now for yourself to what you can do for others. That fits in with what Jesus says about the law of God. You remember what he said when he was asked what's the greatest commandment? He said, actually, there are two. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two things that you can do right now that will have ongoing lasting value in the next life. Both people and God outlast this life, and so what you do for to love them has ongoing value because they themselves are ongoing. And so Jesus is saying here, you will seek some kind of treasure while you live on this earth. You will use the things of this life to store up some kind of treasure. And you will either treasure having, having things for yourself, earth things, things that ultimately will not last, that will be taken from you, or you will treasure loving, loving other people with the things that you have, doing things for them that would fit the way that God would treat them in heaven. If that's what you most treasure, you'll have treasure that lasts. You notice here that Jesus is hinting already that the kinds of treasures that there are are mutually exclusive. That there's no midpoint in between those. There's no way so that both at the same time you can have and love. Think about it this way. Let's say that you've been wanting some nicer furniture. Maybe a new dining room table. The one that you have was handed down to you. It's been through a lot. It's all beaten up. Never really was your style to start with. And so you save up, you do some research, and you find exactly the table that you want. You buy this new table. Now, this is really important. How you use that table has everything to do with what you treasure. If you treasure heaven stuff, then you will use that table to welcome people into your home and to provide a place for them. It'll be a place where they can gather around together, where they can enjoy a meal together. You will use it to love. You'll use it to build relationships with other people. You'll be careful with it. You'll invite your guests to be careful. But when it gets scratched or when your friend's toddler accidentally bangs her cup on it, you won't freak out. You're not going to explode on your on the toddler or your friend, because what you value in that moment is an eternal little person. And you value that person far more than you value the table, the table that one day will not last, that one day you will leave behind. That's what will happen if you treasure heaven stuff. But if you treasure earth stuff, if you treasure the table, you'll treat it like it's a museum piece something to be looked at, something to be admired, but not something that has any greater purpose than it itself. And you won't simply be careful with it. You'll guard it, and you will keep people away from it. You won't look at scratches and see a scratch as evidence that it was actually used to bring people together. That scratch will not be a marker that got left behind of something beautiful, something heavenly. You'll see scratches as evidence that people should not be trusted with your valuable things. And so a scratch then will become a sign that beauty was taken from the world, not a sign that beauty was added to heaven. Do you see how what you treasure is mutually exclusive? That having and loving move in different directions. They have different foci. And Jesus says you will treasure one over the other and that you can't help it because that's how you were designed. You will store up treasure and you'll either store up earth stuff treasure or heaven stuff treasure to jar. That's point 1. Everyone seeks some kind of treasure. Point 2. Your treasure controls your heart. Verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now before we go any further it's important to realize that in scripture the word heart has a very clear definition that is slightly different. It's actually very different from our modern world's definition. When we talk about the heart in the modern world, not the physical organ that pumps blood, but the metaphorical heart, when we talk about heart in the modern world, we tend to think in emotional terms. And so we'll say things like, my heart is so full right now, I feel like I'm going to cry. Or she broke my heart. Or he really played today with a lot of heart. It's the modern way that we use the word heart. Scripture, however, has a more technical meaning, and it's a meaning that is both broader, it includes much more than just emotions, and it's one that is more intentional. It's not something that is reactive, but something that initiates. When Scripture talks about the heart, it's referring to the inner you, the inner person, the invisible you, the essential you that is the control center for how you approach all of the rest of life. In that sense, your heart does feel things and it thinks things and it wills things, it wants things, it desires things, so that you do certain things and you don't do certain other things. When scripture talks about the heart, it's talking about the core of who you are that directs all the other aspects of who you are as a person. It's the inner you that is constantly seeking a certain kind of treasure. And here's the amazing thing about your heart. You don't have to do anything in order for it to latch onto something, to treasure something. Instead, there's an automatic-ness to your treasure-seeking. There's an intentionality that takes place below the level of your thoughts, below the level of your f- feelings. It's an intentionality you can be totally unaware of. And so you don't have to wake up in the morning, pull out a little list next to your bed, and say to yourself, okay heart, wake up, wake up, time to get up, you need to pay attention. Here, remember, these are the things that you're supposed to treasure today. Instead, your heart is way ahead of you. It already knows what to fixate on, because in some sense, it never stopped focusing on those things all night long, even while you physically were asleep. Why is that? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's automatic. And this active heart doesn't only affect your future. It doesn't only determine whether or not you'll have lasting treasure, treasure 500 years from now. It determines what will happen in the next five minutes. That's what Jesus is getting at there in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now you realize here that Jesus has switched the metaphor. He's switched from a heart that seeks treasure, earthly or heavenly, to an eye that is either healthy or unhealthy. The metaphor is different, but he's still talking about your fundamental nature as a human being. All three of these metaphors do that. Think about it this way. What does an eye do? It lets you see what's around you so that the rest of you, your whole body, can then navigate the world. If you have a good, healthy eye, your body will have all the light that it needs in order to live well. Your whole body will be filled with light. But if you have a bad eye, one that's unhealthy, one that's clouded clouded over, your body's in trouble because your body relies on the light that comes through that eye in order to live well. It relies on that light in order to get around well in the world. And if what comes through is not really light, somehow it's been darkened, it's cloudy, you're gonna end up blundering around. You're gonna stumble around. You won't be able to see what you really need to see. And so what your eye focuses on, to mix the metaphor, what your heart treasures determines the kind of light that you have, whether you have light or whether you live in darkness. Now bring the two metaphors together. If your eye, your heart, is focused on heaven stuff, you're going to live well. You'll respond to life, you'll respond in good times, you'll respond in bad times in a way that will be healthy, because you'll understand what's really important in life, and therefore you'll understand what you need to do. But focus your eye, your heart, on earth stuff, and you'll live really badly. stumble around the world, you won't be able to live well. You will be aiming at the wrong kind of treasure, orienting yourself, your whole body, towards something that is not lasting treasure. And the worst part of this is in that last line of verse 23 when Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you focus on earth stuff, if you focus on having, not loving, If you focus on treasure that will not last, then not only are you going to stumble around, run around, hurt yourself and anyone else you run into, you're going to think that what you're doing makes sense. You're going to think that what you're doing is good and right. And so in the moment when your friend's toddler bangs her cup on your new table, it will make sense to you to yell at her, to lunge toward her, to yell at her parents. It'll make sense to you to guard and protect your table to treat the table like it's the lasting possession. And it will make sense not to guard and protect the child, the image of God whose life will outlast every single temporal thing on this planet. You won't guard her. Instead, because you're focused on this earth treasure, it'll make sense to you to traumatize her. That will feel right to you in the moment. It will feel like your whole body is full of light, like you can see really well right then. But from the outside, everyone else will see how great is your darkness. That's point two. That not only do you seek treasure, but that the treasure you seek controls your heart, which impacts you right now because, point three, your heart controls what you do. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Extending the metaphor, you cannot serve God and earth treasure. Jesus has changed the metaphor again, but he's still teaching you and me about what we're like. Teaching that not only are we goal-oriented, that we're treasure seekers, but that we serve whatever that treasure is, that we listen to it, that it is our master. And notice again, our listening is exclusive, that by listening to one master, one treasure, we necessarily do not listen to the other. That once your heart is set on a certain treasure, it orients the visible person, the person you can see, it orients that person around that treasure. So that you love anything to do with that treasure, anything to do with having more of it, while you despise anything that would lead you away from it. And so whatever absorbs your heart absorbs the rest of you as well. It controls what you think about, when you think about it, how long you think about it. It controls what you feel. It controls how you see the world, what you think is good and beautiful and what you think is not. It controls the kinds of things that you spend your time and energy on. It controls the things that you wake up thinking about, the things that you go to bed dreaming about, the things that you wish you had more of, the things that you are scheming to have more of. It's what depresses you when you can't make it happen. It influences what you most talk about. Pay attention to all of those things because they tell you their expressions of your heart. They tell you what controls your heart. This is the key to understanding why you do what you do. It's because your treasure controls your heart and your heart controls how you live. And your heart only obeys one master at a time, either something that is wrapped up in earth stuff or it obeys the master who sits in heaven. Your heart never obeys the two at the same time. When your child or your friend borrows your car, and then calls you to tell you that they just got into an accident, you will only ask one question first. Either you will care about the car, about how badly an earth treasure is now doing. Is the damage really bad? Or you will care about a person, about how a heaven treasure is doing. Are you okay? Now, you might try to say to me, well, I actually care about both my car and my child, my friend. But you can only ask, one question at a time. And the question that you ask first shows what controls your heart and what you listen to. Now pay attention to the language Jesus uses here. He says you will serve a master, (laughs) but then he doesn't go on to talk about what the master is like. Doesn't talk about how nice the master is, doesn't talk about how mean the master is, how threatening the master is. He, He talks about you. And he talks about what your relationship is to the master. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, he doesn't talk about the relationship as one that is based on power. The master has this amount of authority over you. Doesn't talk about a relationship built on incentives. The master says, if you do this, then I will do this. He talks about a relationship that's built on passion that's built on desire, that's built on seeing the one master as so much more beautiful than the other, that you're drawn to that one, so that you move toward that one, so that you move away from the other. What is that? That's the language of worship, of so valuing one treasure over the other. You can't imagine doing anything other than listening to this one to obeying whatever this master wants. And you can't imagine doing anything other than rejecting this one, despising that master. That's the language of the heart. The heart sits below your thoughts, it sits below your feelings, below your your actions. It's responsible for all of those, but its language is love and passion and desire. And it orients thoughts, feelings, actions either toward God toward the heaven that he rules, or it orients your thoughts, feelings, and actions towards something here on earth. What you treasure, what you worship, controls your heart, which controls what you do. At your most basic fundamental self, that's why you do what you do. Which means that the nature of change then, nature of spiritual transformation, Has to begin in your heart. It has to begin with what you worship. And this is why so much of what we try to do in the Christian life fails. Because we try to change our behavior, we try to change our thoughts, we try to change the things that the heart controls without actually having a heart change, which only sets us up then to get blindsided by our heart. Because our heart is still treasuring the thing that it wanted before. And it still controls what we do, which means we end up doing things that seek that treasure even though those things leave us dark inside, hurting other people. So if you want to see change in your life, you have to aim at the level of the heart. You have to have a change in what you love. Because when you love something different, when your heart turns to a new master, all of the rest of you follows. You'll act in new ways. You'll think new things. You'll feel new things when your heart is redirected in a new way. Had a great illustration from our younger son the other day. Daniel really likes his car, but he's never been a car guy. Other son, Timmy's the car guy, constantly modifying whatever car he has at the moment, loving doing that. Daniel, on the other hand, has always appreciated his car, but it's been strictly utilitarian. Car gets you from point A to point B with the least amount of trouble and the least amount of expense, and that's what he's valued. In that sense, that is what he has treasured about his car. Never been interested then in doing any modifications to it. Doesn't want to spend extra money on it. Not even when Tim has suggested different things he could try. Daniel is studying mechanical engineering. And for the past several months, he's had a co-op work assignment. And he is working for a company that makes aftermarket parts for cars. In the course of this, he's gotten more interested in cars. To the point where he came home the other day and he told me that he was considering doing an engine swap For his car. Now, if like me, you have absolutely no idea what that means, it means you take the old engine out of one car, put the new engine in, I probably could have figured that out. It also means, however, that you swap out the onboard computer, new one has to go in for the old one. It also means you swap out the transmission, the radiator, the exhaust system, all of the wiring, and you realize this is not a small investment, this is a lot of money, a lot of time. And when he tells me this, you realize that something has changed in my son, something at the level of what he sees as beautiful and valuable. See, earlier, he took a job working on cars in order to make money. Money at that time was the higher treasure. Now, however, he's willing to spend money in order to work on cars. Before, working on cars was the means to an end of making money. Now it's reversed. Money is the means to an end of working on cars. Why is that? What's happened? Something about his car appeals to him now in ways that it didn't before. His treasure has changed, and his actions follow. They follow along with that new love. If you want to see your life change so that you live out the kind of spirituality that you see in Scripture, you have to become enthralled with earthly treasure You have to become enthralled with earthly treasure more so than you have ever been with earthly treasure. You have to become devoted to something else. You have to see something else as more wonderful and more lovely than it's ever been. How do you do that? You look at Jesus. You look at what he treasures. You look at how he lived his entire life. And when you do that, it will change you. It will change what you treasure because you'll see how much more beautiful he is than you ever imagined. At one point, Jesus told people that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He told people that he did not live his life here storing up treasure for himself on earth. He had nothing here. Why was that? Because something else appealed to him more. What was that? It was to do the will of his Father regardless of what it cost him. It was to love god and in the process to love you and so jesus aimed his life at heaven he did what he did with heaven in mind as hebrews twelve two tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god he aimed at heaven he stored up treasure there and now where is he he's seated with his father But you think, is that really the joy that was set before him? Is that the treasure, the thing that he wanted more than anything else? What was it that he treasured so much he was willing to endure the cross, willing to live now for that treasure? You think, well, okay, he's seated with the Father. But Jesus was with the Father before he came to earth. That can't be the joy that's set before him. Instead, the joy had to be something that he could have only after the cross. So what was it that he was promised that he could have after he went through the agony of the cross that he didn't have beforehand? And the only thing, as you think through that, the only thing that you'll come up with that he didn't have then, that he has now, is you and me. It's the only thing he got before that he didn't have before. He endured the cross to get us. He endured the cross to set us free from sin, to set us free from fixing our lives on earth stuff, to set us free from, having, from living to have instead of living to love. He did that to set us free so that we could be with him and his Father forever. You are his treasure. You are what he was willing to give up everything that he could have had In order to get. He was willing to trade places with you to get what you deserve so that he could give you what he deserved. He took your punishment so that you could have his reward. Nothing that you have ever treasured on this earth has ever treasured you like he has. Look at him. Look at the love that he has for you. See how beautiful he is. See how much more valuable He is than anything that you could have. See that, and guess what? Your heart will move toward Him, and you will be devoted to Him along with all the rest of you. Lord Jesus, thank You that You came not simply to tell us what is true, not simply to unpack for us who You've made us to be, not simply to give us analytic categories that help us assess and figure out what's wrong you came to change us you came to love us so that we would love you so that we would despise the things that we have lived our lives for that have taken us from you and from others so we would be devoted to you loving you loving others Lord restore us to what you made us to be give us that sense of you of how valuable you are. So we treasure you and want you like we want nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.